The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. With people being arrested for posting offensive memes and with crackdowns on so-called disinformation, does free speech exist in Britain today? To discuss, I'm joined by the equality and human rights barrister from the Bad Law Project, Anna Lutfi. So can you answer that question? Does free speech exist in Britain today? No, it doesn't. Um, Hello and welcome to Offscript. My name is Stephen Edgington. We have a memory of the idea that it does and it should. There's an assumption that I think is derived from the common law uh, foundations of our legal system. And I think that customary habit that one might call call a mentality, if you like, or a cultural assumption, whatever, it's actually a legal um, entitlement that I think people who live here have, um, based on the idea that unless you're doing something wrong, you you can't be stopped from saying something or airing an opinion unless you are engaging uh, what, what I think most people do accept are limits uh, to do with the incitement of hatred um, and, uh, you know, incitement of um, others to commit criminal acts and potentially also liable. I think people are aware of those. They might not always know exactly how these legal provisions play out in their own lives, but most people have no real need of libel law and, um, and most people aren't hell-bent on uh, you know, rousing masses of people and mobs to go and violate places of worship. So, in general, most people should be untouched um, uh, by the, the, the provisions that do exist historically on speech, limitations on speech. And I think people do think they are. But uh, um, unfortunately, the, the landscape is changing so, so rapidly, and it has changed over decades Um, But it's moving very, very fast now, uh, probably with the um, effect or impact of social media on our culture, not just in this country. Uh, But there are other things as well, such as increasing assumption of state um, overreach, uh, assumptions that, you know, the the, the micro dimensions of human life are the proper subject of policing and regulation, not just by the police themselves, but employers. Uh, neighbours, friends, we're all encouraged to sort of uh, check each other's thinking, if you will. Um, And the fact of the matter is the policy landscape is expanding rapidly with state expansion to make it um, plausible uh, to say that Britain is a place where speech is highly regulated and will become more so. So there's there's a situation, isn't there, where everyone has, everyone kind of knows there's a limit to what they can say, as you say, historically, if, whether that's hate speech or incitement or violence or libel. But that has become expanded both in a legal sense, those limits, and in a kind of personal sense in your own mind. So I feel there's a temptation to say my view on a certain thing, but I'm scared of being cancelled. So it's those two branches, isn't it? It's the kind of general atmosphere around freedom of speech and, and what's happened in the law. Yeah. I mean... I take quite a radical position in some ways, and I'm, I'm going to put this out, out there. And I would be very grateful for people who, who are watching this, uh, if they have thoughts about it, to, to, to get in touch with the Bad Law Project. Uh, my fear is that law is becoming increasingly irrelevant for how we live and regulate our lives. Uh, and by law, I mean the English common law that traditionally has been the dominant structure for thinking about 
the law of the United Kingdom and Commonwealth countries. Uh, why do I say it's become irrelevant? Well, that's a big, big um, story that I could go into, but I think it has to do with the expansion of public administrations and the increased remit they have to govern every aspect of life, transactions, social relationships, identities. Um, but I think we also have another problem, which is policy and the role that it plays in informing how the public um, sector governs and how people in public, that is to say private citizens who go into the world, whether that's online or into the street or at work, how they then feel uh, they should speak and think, which is also driven by these policies that are coming out of the, uh, out of the public sector and are being you know, mainstreamed across both sectors and in every walk of life, to the extent that you, what you talked about was a cultural perception that people have of that's, that's probably something I should stay away from, or I won't say what I, I think about that for risk of mainly uh, repercussions in employment. Um, but for some people, it might also be fear of being attacked where they live by activists. You know, that's something that a lot of gender-critical feminists have complained of, that their, their, their homes are doxxed and, and they're targeted. So there are real implications to speaking freely. Um, what I really find unique about the historical moment that we find ourselves in, again, I'm speaking from a British-centric context, if you compare it with totalitarianisms of yore, where you have um, allegiances that are set up, um, that the population understands. I mean, we have to remember that Stalin's um, Soviet project, uh, whether or not Stalin died in wartime, he still came of age during wartime, and as did the um, Chancellor um, of Germany. And I think we have to understand that wartime conditions allowed those administrations to get away with such radical extremes of policing and repression of speech. Um, that it, it, is, it almost isn't really right to compare peacetime scenarios with those, with those totalitarian, totalitarian regimes. But, but if we do do that, and we look at those totalitarian regimes, we see that there was very strong allegiances, often governed by a rhetoric of, 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 of friend-enemy. These people are the enemy. If you want to stay on the right side of the party or the government or the administration, you have to side with the friend. You are part of this polity and you have a common enemy. And we see that depicted, obviously, in 1984 with George Orwell's you know, two-minute hate, where Goldstein is the enemy and everybody's united in this. The, the thing that, about the contemporary social media um, era is that the enemy is not defined at all. And even if you are quite ideologically driven by a tribal view of the world where you say, because I am a Corbynista or because I'm a, um, a, a one-nation Tory or whatever you call yourself, uh, you're always going to have this view on that issue. I think those days are evaporating. I think it's becoming difficult to know what the correct position is and also what the correct position is on what because the issues are moving very very quickly i'll give you an example from our well-worn friend the transgender question which is something everyone always wants to talk about you know the whole business of freedom of expression for those who are gender critical and say you cannot change sex sex is important it's immutable and 
a lot of those people say we don't believe you can change sex and therefore we will continue to refer to the world as if it's governed by the, the dimorphic biological reality of the human race as, a, as, as two, two sexes. Um, their right to speak about that has been um, organised as a polarising view against the transgender activists who say gender is fluid on a spectrum and if you don't accept somebody's gender identity then you're a, a transphobic bigot and you want trans people to die and it's like being a white supremacist and, and, and these two, two positions are presented and then people will say well I'm, I'm that side or that but before we even got entrenched into those two positions we had policy terms coming at us between the eyes um, such as non-binary identities. You know, we, 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 we had a whole uh, swathe of different types of policy coming at us from both the public and private sector about non-binary identities. And we had even people testing the limits of case law uh, by wanting um, X on their passport rather than um, you know, male or female in order to test the idea that not just... Uh, there are not just people out there in the world who identify as the opposite sex, which in some sense reinforces the idea that there are two sexes, but that we, we have these other um, identities which, which challenge the notion that there can be sex at all. And those people were making demands through policy-backed initiatives before we'd even had any kind of debate or discussion about what we think it means to identify as the opposite sex using the concept of transsexual or transgender or gender reassigned. And so if you, and that's just one example, I could take any issue in our current cultural climate and say it's the same, that, that before there's even a settled polarisation of views with a left and a right or a right and a wrong or a black and a white, however you want to frame it, um, the issue is moving with new ideas, new concepts, new debates and new um, vocabulary that policy is in insisting, particularly in the workplace, that everybody be familiar with and on board with. And, and I think the average person, not because they're stupid and not because they're, they're cowardly, um, will, will opt for the quiet position on all of it, not least because they have no bloody idea, as nor do I. I would say, as someone who studies this stuff, uh, no idea what's going on, no idea what is being um, expected of the citizen through speech other than trouble. And so people are inherently um, learning that it's better not to rely on speech as a source of identity for um, engaging with the body politic, engaging with, with, with the society that you live in. And I think that just creates a kind of um, demoralised population of individuals who feel increasingly inside their own heads. So the lines of acceptability of what you're allowed to say, whether that's through the law or through this kind of subjective atmosphere that exists in workplaces or on social media, are changing all the time. And suddenly you have this cultural revolution where a position that was acceptable in one minute is suddenly unacceptable in the next and people have no idea um, what, where those lines of acceptability are so they'd rather just shut up basically I think is what you're trying to say well yes and both 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 opposites can be true at the same time then what do you do I want to talk about one area where, which is again subjective and it's this idea of being grossly offensive and you've seen people say say racist things or post racist memes in group chats in whatsapp group chats or on uh, twitter and they've been arrested for that, for uh, saying something that a judge has decided is so-called grossly offensive under the Communications Act. So can you talk about 
where the line is in terms of um, causing offence or, or being grossly offensive online, like if, if I'm tweeting and I say something that's racist, could I get charged for that, for example? The, the initial concerns in the UK about, about police getting involved with freedom of expression on social media came around... 2018 when uh, Harry Miller was approached by police and told that he had committed a non-crime hate incident because he'd misgendered or used some disparaging language uh, potentially about transgender people online. That qualified as a non-crime hate incident and that was the first time the British population had heard that there was such a thing. Now the reason why the British population didn't know was because, um, it for, for in part, it, it, I mean, part of it is because we don't know anything that's going on anymore because the landscape is complex and changing all the time. But but one reason why they didn't know it was um, a thing was because it wasn't really a thing. There is no such thing as a non-crime hate incident in law. Uh, the very notion challenges our rational understanding of what the law can do because if the law is to draw a line between criminal and non-criminal behaviour, the non-crime hate incident, by its very um, wording, challenges the idea that, that, the, that the criminal and the non-criminal, or the lawful and the unlawful, are two distinct spheres. They, get, they become blended. And then it becomes an arbitrary decision by an individual police officer uh, as to where that line is drawn. Does this, does this, this, this speech warrant flagging as it turned out, non-crime hate incidents are recorded um, in the majority of cases by a discerning police officer who decides that it warrants recording. And then that recording of your name shows up on a database check, uh, a DBS check, sorry, uh, later on down the line if you're applying for jobs and so on and so forth. So it can have implications for you. But it's not technically a criminal offence and you are not... Um, you're not landed with a criminal record. And you may not even know about this. And you may not know about it. Um, why do these things happen in the first place? Well, they decided that there should be some something called a non-crime hate incident and that certain, certain strands of identity would be vulnerable to hate. And they decided that transgenderism, which isn't a really a legal category, that transgender identity was going to make you vulnerable to hate. So police were put on notice through various policy training schemes, you know, where they are informed about potentially hateful language about a transgender um, about transgender in general, then that could warrant recording a non-crime hate incident. But the key is there has to be reported. So none of this has been debated in Parliament. None of it has been scrutinised. It doesn't exist. It doesn't have a statutory framework. There's no legislation that we're talking about here that we can apply to amend or petition to repeal or, uh, you know, simply get our MPs on board with addressing what, what, what the issues are here because they do engage, as we know, Harry Miller challenged that police decision and his Article 10 rights were upheld and he was found on appeal to have had his freedom of expression rights infringed, not only by the, by the police officers who apprehended him, but the College of Policing that brought the policy into existence. How, however, that, that policy sort of exists. The fact that it got bad press, because Harry Miller was, was wily enough to um, create a huge public interest campaign around his individual case and he was lucky enough to be able to have the means to do that through judicial review an expensive and 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 um, resource heavy procedure 
Because he got the public worked up about non-crime hate incidents, using his case to publicise the fact, the public became aware of it, the police started to take a back, a back step. So we, we saw a drop in the amount of people that were getting approached and we saw a drop in the number of people being reported for hateful behaviour online. But then what we saw was people being reported for things like malicious communications offences, which is why I, I started this long detour into your question. Because if non-crime hate incidents were getting a bad press and they were seen to be potentially engaging Article 10 rights and, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's just a policy, it's not even real, OK, then let's go to the criminal law where malicious communications is a criminal offence and get somebody um, on that. Well, all that means is you've turned speech um, that is offensive into a criminal offence as a result of campaigning to get the non-crime hate incident thrown out as bad law. That's a terrible state of affairs. But what is the law around um, saying something that's offensive? Under well, it has to be targeted. One of the, one of the driven um, comments by Justice Knowles in the Harry Miller case was that he wasn't clear as to who was targeted by Harry Miller's tweets. I mean, Harry Miller's tweets, if you read them, and there was about, I don't a good good few were identified as potentially hateful to trans people. Um, they, they, they covered all sorts of things from making um, jokes about, um, oh God, woman of the year, uh, ex-sportsman, um, God, you know who I mean, Kardashian. Yes, uh, yeah, uh, Caitlyn Jenner. Caitlyn Jenner, yeah. yes. So making, you know, jokes about Caitlyn Jenner to um, jokes about whether you can change species and all sorts of things like that. These, these were all collectively treated as the tweets, the, 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 the complained of tweets. And Justice Knowles said, I don't really know who's being targeted here. Now, he wasn't dealing with a, a, a criminal complaint under the Malicious Communications Act. But he was anticipating the logic of that legislation, which is where people are being subjected to unwanted communications. We all know that's a problem. Every one of us will have had, you know, at some point in our lives, an email that felt threatening or a note through the door that didn't feel quite right, you know. And, and it's absolutely right and proper that targeted um, conduct of any kind falls within the remit potentially of the criminal law. So that's the threshold. It's that you have to have a specific target that you are being grossly offensive Yes, because you have to intend to, to cause them a certain level of distress or discomfort. So obviously, if I'm not targeting somebody, then I think the traditional reasonable um, assumption would be that you're limited in how much distress you can cause to an individual if you're not targeting that individual. So if I say... Human beings are morons. You're, you're unlikely sitting there to feel personally distressed. If I say men are morons, you might feel a bit like, well, that's, I take that somewhat personally. But if I say your name and say Steve is a moron, well, it's understandable why you might want to leave my home and not stay here. But if I then said Steve's not only a moron, but he deserves to die, and I'm going to see to it that he he regrets every waking minute of his life from now on. You can see how it works. So this understanding of escalation in the criminal jurisdiction is well understood. And I think that common sense understanding interpretation of, of, of the logic behind the Malicious Communications Act was, was informing Justice Knowles when he was trying to understand who was, who was harmed by Harry Miller's tweets. And it, it spoke for Harry's case that Justice Knowles couldn't really see any targeting at all, just an opinion. 
maliciously malicious opinion can you have a malicious certainly not everybody's cup of tea but unlawful no and certainly not worthy of potentially engaging a kind of um, uh, quasi-criminal record held in secret disclosable to unknown par- par- parties that all that sort of thing led Justice Knowles to say um, you know that the police had acted you know unlawfully and he and he prefaced his comments with that famous line now we've never had a checker a Gestapo uh, or a Stasi in this country. And, 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 and so you can see. But unfortunately, if you then say, right, we're not doing non-crime hate incidents anymore, and you have activists who are determined to report people in order to stop them saying things and to stop them being confident about saying things and to create an, a chilling effect, then they will seize on other instruments. And it seems that there is cases now where people have been arrested because someone's been reported for malicious communications for doing something that is not expressly or in any way targeting an individual or a group of individuals, identifiable group. In your view on the principle of this question, not necessarily the law, but in the principle, do you think that someone should be charged for saying something racist against, say, a footballer, for example, on Twitter? Do I think they should be charged? Well, charged. Do do you think that should be against the law? Well, that's a really tough question. I mean... Everything is contextual. I mean, that is a terrible thing for a lawyer to say, but it is. It is contextual. It really depends on the circumstances. And and also, I don't work in the criminal jurisdiction, so I'm not dealing with... I mean, I shouldn't really be dealing with police matters at all. Um, And it's just a... It's a testament. You have views on free speech. I suppose that's why I'm asking. Yeah, yeah, I do have views on free speech. And I suppose if I was, you know, king of the world... Uh, probably uh, it, it wouldn't be my um, preference that that speech in general is 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 a police matter. Um, now I know I know we live in febrile times where people say, but what about this? I mean, look, we've just had um, a situation in this country where people who 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 have been banging the freedom of expression drum on. Um, the culture wars and are identified more or less by social justice warriors who don't seem to care about freedom of expression as the right or the far right. Um, We have seen those people, uh, some of those people, moving into a more let's shut down views we don't like in recent days because of tensions escalating in the Middle East. And we've seen talk of banning certain flags, banning certain symbols, banning certain phrases, possibly even banning certain protests. Um, and it's, it's, a really, it's a really difficult one because, of course, what's going to be used to justify that position is not freedom of expression, but the safety of others. And it's about safety, isn't it? Yeah. The, the language of safety and personal safety has become a phenomenon among activists, I suppose, on both sides, if we're talking about the recent events with um, Palestine and Israel. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, lots of trans activists like to say that what you're saying makes me feel unsafe and therefore you shouldn't be able to say it. So how does one deal with this argument of personal safety? And if I say something that makes you feel unsafe, should that be against the law? No, I mean, I don't think anything you say should be against the law because I feel it's unsafe, unless, you know, we're, we're engaging the, the areas that I touched on earlier. I mean, if I, 
you know, you, you, you were invited here today, but if you turned up at, at two o'clock in the morning outside my house, banging on the door, drunk off your head, saying, you know, I'm going to have a word with you, then yes, I would say that felt, made me feel unsafe and that your actions and your words combined amounted to conduct that was designed, intended to distress me um, and possibly um, even attack me. Uh, but we are, that's the world of reasonableness, where I just assume that most people listening can see that threshold in their heads and know that that threshold is just so not applicable to most debates, no matter how fractious those debates are, no matter how passionately held the views, that, 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 that a debate about the future of Palestine and the borders of Israel are... Uh, I understand why it's emotionally driven for many people and that many people have personal family histories where there may even be scars that are still healing as we speak. But does that count as feeling unsafe to the degree that the debate about those borders and about those polit geopolitical questions should, should not be had? Um, is there more than two sides to this debate? I, I mean, I don't even think there are only two sides. We've certainly been told there are only two sides to this debate. I, I question that. I think one of the effects of saying everybody's so unsafe that we have to have a moratorium on debate, one of the effects of that is to create the idea that there are two sides. When in reality, actually, there might be much more points of agreement than we realise if we could all just be allowed to express, you know, uh, views on it. But the argument I suppose some make is that in the recent case of Hamas, yes. if one makes a statement supporting Hamas or wears a badge supporting Hamas, for example, yeah. with the um, paraglider person or whatever who came in and killed those innocent Israelis, they compare that to supporting ISIS and supporting a terrorist organisation that just killed over a thousand Jewish civilians in Israel in the, in, you know, in the worst terrorist attack that, against Jewish people since the, in one day again, you know, since the Holocaust. Yeah. So, Again, it's, it's that issue of, of supporting terrorist organisations and whether that should be legal. So how do, you, how do you come back on that argument? Well, look, it's so difficult because obviously law, lawyers are not... Um, you know, we don't permit things to happen no. and we don't bestow our, our, our worthy sort of approval on, on policies and laws that we think should be in place. So I, I really, but I'm asking from a philosophical perspective. I know perspective. you are, yeah. I just really want everyone to understand that humility is mine at this point when I speak. I don't, I don't pretend to have um, an easy and persuasive answer to this very difficult, challenging question. Because what we cannot do, none of us, whether we, we work in law or whether we work in, in, in um, uh, the media, what we cannot do is control um, the way in which certain world events play out in the emotions of people as they go about their business um, and the kinds of contexts that will arise. Uh, in the situation of somebody having lost an entire family as a result of Hamas activity and then maybe be confronted with people in the streets of London waving flags, seemingly celebrating. I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me in those situations if people didn't express themselves with less than ideal comportment. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I wouldn't encourage that, but I can certainly understand it. Um, and that is something that is going to happen. You're going to have in every society, especially at certain historical moments, incendiary words. Incendiary. I mean, the N-word, for example, uh, was, 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 was absolutely looked down on as I was growing up. I'm 48. And it was not used in polite society. It wasn't used in circles that I moved in. But it wasn't incendiary. It has become incendiary. Uh, and to use it is to knowingly create an incendiary context. And you as a rational person should know that, unless you're a child or... Yeah, but unless you have mitigating factors that, that, that make it difficult for you to understand how incendiary that N-word is. And I think, you know, in Hungary, for example, where I lived, it was against the law to display either the hammer and sickle of the communist era and the swastika of the Nazi era, or the white, I think it was the um, arrow cross insignia. These symbols of totalitarianism um, were, and still are, I believe, against the law to display. They engage the criminal law, and they are incendiary symbols. And most people in Hungary have visceral responses to them, one way or the other. Um, so I think... What I would say is the law doesn't try, and this is what I like about the common law, the, co the common law doesn't try to regulate individual behaviour and say, you know, um, this is the way, this is the truth. It, it relies on common sense comportment so that you don't have to regulate every single aspect of life. That is to say, as common law citizens, we should be exercising discretion. So I'm not going to go into any situation and be incendiary and then turn around and say, oh, I didn't um, think that would be a problem that I waved a swastika in the face of a grieving Jewish family. It doesn't work and it's not convincing and I'm not convinced and I'm not compelled. And frankly, if there are repercussions for you, you're not going to be at the top of my to-do list unless, of course, you instruct me, in which case I am in your hands, you know. But you know, that's how I feel about it. But I think most things don't come under that... that even the Arab-Israeli conflict should not be, or Palestine-Israeli conflict or whatever we're calling it today, even that conflict should not be automatically designated incendiary in all of its aspects such that people feel they cannot touch it with a barge pole uh, for risk of being you know a, a nazi or a, or a hamas supporter that's my view but the law generally would support that position i think at this point you mentioned hungary and i want to go down a sort of hungarian rabbit hole if you would yeah. for 10 or 20 minutes <laughs> and we'll, come, we'll hole, come yeah. back to the UK after that but um, you you lived in Hungary you worked in Hungary um, I think you taught history in Hungary can you talk a bit about your experiences in Hungary in terms of freedom of speech because there are many people on the left in uh, in Britain and in other European Western European countries who make the argument that Hungary is falling down an authoritarian path 
where there are restrictions on freedom of speech and it's very difficult to say things and it's no longer a liberal uh, democracy. So, so what was your experiences like in Hungary? Yeah, I mean, Hungary, it is. It, I haven't lived there since 2013 and we're already 10 years. I can't believe it's gone like that. So 10 years ago, I moved back to the UK. I left in the late 90s um, after I finished my uh, undergraduate degree uh, to pursue a romantic um, endeavour. And I ended up staying there for 15 years. Um, and... The romantic endeavour is, is, is relevant insofar as it was a same-sex relationship. So um, I'm happy to sit here and swear on any holy book or secular book that in all the time I lived in Hungary openly in a same-sex relationship, uh, not one person raised an eyebrow. That's a fact. Um, on the contrary, I was very privileged to enjoy deep and lasting uh, friendships with many, many people um, from every class background and every part of the country. So not just the uh, middle class elite in Budapest. So that's one thing. So that's my own experience anecdotally. And then, of course, there was the Central European University, which was founded in 1991. Uh, initially, I think, based in Warsaw, it moved to Budapest. It was funded by George Soros, the billionaire philanthropist who, of Hungarian extraction, who was a huge fan or is a huge fan of Karl Popper, the philosopher, and he wanted to create a sort of tribute university modelled on Western values, as, as, as they were then called, um, of openness um, and critical thinking and robust debate and freedom of expression. And this was symbolic in 1991 because, of course, the wall had come down and the Soviet system had fragmented and there were all of these different discussions going on across East and Central Europe about transition, not the gender kind, but the transition to uh, market economies in the East and the expansion of the European Union, all of which hugely aspirational for Hungary, wanted to be part of the EU, wanted to be a functioning democracy with a, with a, with a flourishing um, uh, economy, prosperity for the people and part of a European family which the Soviet system had been regarded as, as, as bearing down on Hungary and alienating Hungary along with other satellite states from, from the central European family to which Hungary rightfully belonged. That was the general narrative that I encountered when I uh, arrived and it wasn't a narrative that I don't think, uh, it wasn't a narrative that I think George Soros would have would have been anything but supportive of. He wanted to see a bastion of freedom of expression, debate and free thinking um, in the heart of his uh, former home country. And uh, when I arrived, it was a predominantly East and Central European student body and most of the faculty were also East European. So we were talking incredibly diverse, but um, from countries and cultures and histories that I had not encountered growing up in the UK. So all of the people around me were, you know, of Russian, Bulgarian, Romanian, Polish, uh, Slovak, uh, there were a few Turks, uh, and increasingly more Turks with time. A lot of Turks came. Uh, and of course, in 2000, we had the war in uh, former Yugoslavia with the bombing of uh, Serbia by NATO. Now, you have to remember that in that context, that was incredibly polarising. I mean, NATO was bombing a European country uh, from the air. Serbians were wearing targets on their T-shirts because they felt like they were targets 
uh, of a super military power that had the backing of every powerful country. And their country was being carved up into these um, ethnic enclaves that were killing each other. There was genocide happening. There, was, there were mass graves. There were uh, rapes, uh, rape camps. Uh, so it couldn't have been more volatile. And yet, and yet, at that time, and I remember it as clearly as, as, as I see you sitting before me, we had people, Croats, Serbs, Montenegrins, chatting away about it in the classroom, going and having a drink to chat about it further, smoking 20 boxes of cigarettes into the early hours, chatting about it. And yes, people got emotional. But I, you know, when I look back, I just think, how was this possible? I, I, I mentioned the Turkish students, large body of Turkish students, Israelis, um, Iranians. They would just chat about the relationship of church and state, or the relationship of religion and state, democracy in the Middle East. It is food. We talk here about the postmodernists, right? And oh, we've all been smashed to pieces about, you know, because of this stupid postmodernism that is probably all Foucault's fault because he wants to take apart the rational basis of the Western Enlightenment and destroy our culture while he's at it and bring in this neo cultural Marxism that's all about relativism. But the Iranian students in my class in Budapest were talking about whether Foucault can even be read through an Iranian lens. And what are the aspects of Foucault that make it unsuitable for um, application in, in, in a Persian context? Now that is an intellectual um, environment that one is incredibly grateful to be part of. I mean, it, was, it was like that. You could talk about anything, nothing was off limits, and people who were from totally demoralised geopolitical conflict zones were capable of having discussions. I mean, I taught feminist um, phenomenology and feminist essentialist feminist philosophy based on a phenomenological reading for, for, the, for, the, for the viewers. That means feminism, which assumes there are two sexes, male and female, and that your feminism proceeds accordingly. I was teaching that alongside Judith Butler. I had people that I didn't even know were trans-identified in my class. And we just talked about it. I didn't even know there was an issue until there was an issue. So, so for you, was this a kind of golden era of freedom of speech? Absolutely. 100%. And do you think that's partly because Hungary had just came out of this oppressive authoritarian system where there were massive restrictions on freedom of speech, where you had people like Roger Scruton having to do sort of secret lectures on the underground, and, uh, and sort of it was almost like a, a sort of reaction to that and a kind of burst of liberalism Completely. came from that? Completely. And then the people who were, you know, sort of older veterans from the previous generations were mostly taken from a dissident class of people whose families had either, either left Eastern Europe to settle in Western democracies or they'd and, and they had come back or they'd never left, but they'd, they had been part of sort of Sanzimat publication networks and, you know, resistance to the Soviet system. So and many of them veterans. I mean, our rector, uh, Yehuda Elkana, fantastic man fantastic man, sadly no longer with us, Israeli, absolutist when it came to freedom of expression. He got annoyed with people who said that Holocaust denial should not be permitted on campus. And he was in Auschwitz. And he was a gentleman, an absolute gentleman. And, you know, 
he said, I mean, he was disliked by many people within the, organ- within the university because he was, you know, had his own personality and, uh, and quirks. But as, as a university rector, he, he did understand freedom of expression and he prioritised it. And then that whole era was also, as you say, a coming out of something that was understood to have had very repressive effects on speech, debate, education, pluralism. Um, I mean, I didn't know what civil society meant. I went to the, um, the, my first university lectures, people kept talking about bloody civil society and Habermas, I never heard of him. Habermas, Hannah Arendt, the importance of building civil society. I said, what civil society? They said, well, you're British, you've got it already. It was an interesting lesson because you do not know the things that you take for granted. I was like, well, what is it? What does it mean? They were like, well, you know, when private individuals voluntarily cooperate with one another in the public domain to, um, you know, but independently of government, independently of the state. So do you see, uh, when you meet people who've experienced those totalitarian systems, do you think us in the West, we have become decadent in a way? Mm -hmm. Because we don't, as you say, we don't know what it's like to really live under Soviet, uh, the Soviet era or the Nazi era, for example. And those encroachments on freedom of speech and all of those, all of the things we talked about in the interview already, we, um, I suppose, we're just naive to, do you think it's a naivety that we have, that that's why um, freedom of speech is on the decline in places like Britain and other, and other Western democracies? Well, I can't speak about what it's like in Hungary now in the last 10 years because I haven't lived there. And I'm sure there are people who would say that, you know, there are issues around freedom of the press and, and so on. Uh, and I don't know. Um, it's not my living environment. Uh, and um, obviously, when I was there, I was in a, in a, in a campus culture, um, you know, where intellectual debates were taking place within, a, within a, a certain environment that was perhaps not typical of the country as a whole. So I can't say what it was like, for example, um, living in Hungary outside of the Central European University project, um, other than my anecdotal experiences and discussion. But I never personally felt that there was... Um, I didn't feel that there was a growing repressive mechanism in Hungary. I never felt that as a foreigner. I never felt that as a gay foreigner. I never felt that as an intellectual and as somebody with, you know, who was who was working in areas that perhaps are unfamiliar for unfamiliar territory for the for the Hungarian regime. Um, so I, I don't want to speak about that. And the reason I mention it is because I don't want to suggest that somehow the West is more decadent and less free than its European counterparts on the, in the East towards uh, Russia. I just don't want to go there because I don't think we have a clue how we even measure this stuff. Um, what I do feel is that there is something happening in Britain, and I will stick to the British context, which is increasingly repressive. I do, I do say that. And I do think that the British as a population suffer, and I've said this a million times, so people will have heard me say this before to the extent that they've heard me speak before. I think the British suffer from an incredible, um, I, I don't even want to call it naivety. I think it is, um, it is, a, it is, if we're going to talk about racism, there is only, I can only describe it as a kind of racism, which non-Brits also deploy, which is that Britain is literally incapable of ever seriously losing its status as a democratic society because it's inherently racially superior to other 
countries and other nations and other races. That, that is the only interpretation that I can lay on, on why people seem so insistent that that phrase you hear all the time, it couldn't happen here. Well, they wouldn't do that here. And when you say, but what about Zimbabwe or what about Iran or what about uh, Hungary, for example, people say, well, those countries, and that's all they've got. Those countries are like that. They're just inferior on this hierarchy of, of rank. So in a way, Britain is a victim of our own success because we have had, I would argue, a unique period of stability. Obviously, we haven't been properly invaded since 1066. Some people make comparisons to 1688, but, um, but we, haven't, we haven't been um, sort of humiliated and, and our culture being completely destroyed and imposed upon us by outside nations for over a thousand years. And when you look to somewhere like Poland or Hungary, um, who've been repeatedly invaded and repeatedly attacked by various um, oppressive countries, then I suppose that, that mindset that you talked about of the British feeling above other nations, may, um, that it may be born out of that. Do you, do you agree with that? I do agree yeah. with that, yeah. I think, I think the, the idea that you've been successful in the world um, and then... I suppose the question is, well, what, what, what were we successful for? In some senses, for bad things. So, you know, there's the colonial projects that were set up and the, and the exporting of, um, you know, uh, enterprise that was seen to profit the British uh, companies that, that sponsored those projects. But there was also the exporting of, you know, ideas about civil society, the rule of law, um, what, what, what a... What a constitutional democracy looks like both in theory and in practice and those things have rubbed off all over the world uh, and still continue to be persuasive I mean you know English contract law is still the the dominant framework for international arbitration between nations uh, in commercial matters and I think that's relevant so we have this idea that we've 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 been successful and we've been successful for good things but we don't understand that that, 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 there is, that the success does not derive from racial superiority. It doesn't, it's not inherent in your genes. You're not born democratic. And poor you if you're born in sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, North Korea because you just don't have those democratic genes. There's nothing genetically different when it comes to political aspirations between a North Korean and a British citizen. Yes, of course, there's a different culture and history, but... I think Brits are, they, they haven't been attentive enough to the ways in which um, pri privileges are undermined and liberty, traditional liberties are eroded. Is there an argument to say that this isn't about race and British race, racial superiority, but this is actually an ideological point? Because ever since the end of the Second World War, when liberalism yeah. became the do dominant ideology among Western Europe and among uh, the United States, there has been this viewpoint that we must export this ideology to other countries. And that's the kind of, uh, you know, this ideology is the one that works and every other system is a failure. Um, so Afghanistan is a good example of this. Iraq is a good example of this the kind of nation-building project, where we've tried to export this, um, these so-called liberties and democracy, the parliamentary democracy system to countries where it didn't work and, and, and they've never had those histories and those cultures and those contexts. So I, just, I think this idea of supposedly us being racially superior is slightly different from liberalism as, as an ideology being the, the superior or dominant ideology. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, liberalism is a bit difficult to define uh, in terms of uh, 
what the British thought they were exporting. Were they exporting liberalism? Were they exporting trading opportunities? Were they exporting um, fantasies of the master race, if you take a, a social justice sort of position on the de decolonizing approach? Um, we, we do know that the, that the British um, did export institutional arrangements, and we could call them the building blocks of constitutional democracies. Uh, and, you know, to some extent, that's been, um, you know, positive in the sense that people eat Chinese food all over the world. I mean, you know, the things, things work, and they work because they work, and then people who are exposed to things that they like will be happy to, to, to take and improve those things. So I don't think it's only a question of colonial imposition that uh, we have aspects of, of British political and legal arrangements in place across the world, although I'll probably be, be considered a racist for saying that. I think it is an impact. It, it, the colonial as, uh, project had racial implications, but I think you know the fact that we have huge numbers of countries, even outside the common law jurisdictions, that do see English law as a very important uh, reference point for understanding the rule of law and understanding how relations between nations should be conducted, including, by the way, the drafting of the European Convention on Human Rights, which was mainly British lawyers who drafted it. I mean, I think our role in the world legalistically is quite important, and I think it's, it's not just a result of colonial oppression of others. I think it has come about because, to some extent, the English common law system has been tested in multiple jurisdictions and not found too wanting and therefore useful. Um, and as you say, that we shouldn't see this as, as, as purely um, something that gets racialized as, as British culture, but it actually forms part of the global understanding of how, as a, as a, as a global society, we are working out questions of rule of law and what is what are what are the limits um, within nations of certain jurisdictions and when does the international order come in versus the, the domestic jurisdiction right let's take the conversation back to freedom of yeah. speech and i think that we'll end the last sort of 10 minutes talking about labor and because next year there's a general election and according to the opinion polls labor are highly likely to win that election and they've got some plans around uh, areas that we discussed at the beginning of this interview in terms of hate speech, misgendering, um, and, 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 and sort of all of their laws mm -hmm. around um, social, regulating social media, etc. So I just want to get a general sense of whether Britons should be worried about their free speech rights under a Labour government. Well, they should be worried. Of course, we should all be worried about everything all the time and terrified and sick with fear and not able to get up in the morning, of course. But I think we should have a jolly good laugh about this, actually. And I know that's an irresponsible thing to say because we're talking about hate. We're not talking about, you know, uh, kittens. We're talking about hate and how dare I say, let's have a jolly good laugh at it. But let's be absolutely clear. This is a perfect example of how ludicrous our current legal situation is. Let's say Labour come in and they say that anybody who misgenders somebody, deliberately or otherwise, um, is to suffer the death penalty without trial, okay? Uh, and at the other end, let's say that Labour come in and they say anyone who misgenders someone with a view to, to you know, intentionally misgendering gets a slap on the wrist, literally, right? Those are the two extremes. It doesn't matter which one of those extremes Labour plumps for from a legalistic perspective because, because, we, because there is a, 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 a ludicrousness 
inherent already in the idea that to misgender should re receive sanction of any kind. And the reason is that, thanks to Maya Forstarter and her efforts at the, employment, at the Employment Appeal Tribunal, her view, her, her belief, as it's called in the rhetoric of the Equality Act, her protected belief is that you cannot change sex. And that belief has been held to fall within uh, the so-called test for protected belief to the extent that you cannot discriminate against somebody for holding that belief. Therefore, if people are gender critical, if they hold that belief, then any sanction proposed by a Labour government is potentially unlawful discrimination against such people. And I may add, there are large numbers of people whom Labour claim to court, ethnic minorities and religious minorities, people from faith communities, where I am telling you, whether people listening want to accept it or not, that it is doctrinally impossible to change sex. And there are no ifs and no buts when it comes to doctrine. You cannot negotiate. It's not a question of being kind or polite. It's a question of ontological existence to a an Orthodox Jew or a Muslim or a, or a Christian, evangelical Christian particularly, the, the, these, these are ontological questions of faith. You cannot have a doctrinal position that allows for gender fluidity. So if Keir Starmer and any other person, Annalise Dodds, wants to sit down and tell, uh, especially now, I think it would be good timing actually, go to mosques and synagogues up and down the country and tell them that they will be potentially engaging the criminal law if their doctrine is upheld um, as a matter of personal faith, also protected, might I add, by um, you know, the Equality Act, supposedly. I mean, do you see how ludicrous the position is? And unfortunately, this is the position I hold. The reason like, public officials and political um, individuals, pub public representatives, the reason they care less and less about the law is because the law is less and less relevant. And that is a trend we're going to see increase over time. The increasing irrelevance and impotence of law to control, regulate or punish anything or anyone. And that is why I think in some ways the repressive things I see concern me, but they concern me increasingly not as a lawyer, but as a citizen. Because as a lawyer, they are outside of the jurisdiction of law and therefore cannot be held accountable, addressed, scrutinised, repealed, abolished or petitioned against in the tradition of our good old, you know, Quaker forefathers and mothers. We, we started this interview by talking about whether free speech exists in Britain and you said it doesn't. Mm. And again, I want to come back to this issue of a Labour government. What kind of implications could a Labour government have on freedom of speech in the UK? Well, you know, since you don't need the law on your side anymore, all you need is rhetoric, don't you? And you've created de facto the legal situation you want to see and the legal rain, the, 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 the policy framework, the political framework, the rhetoric that is deployed increasingly to control what we say and what we think and how we associate with one another um, is hate. So, I mean, is the Conservative Party slightly more sober when it comes to rhetoric around hate? One would hope so, but not necessarily. Um, after all, a lot of the stuff that we've seen 
developing in this country has happened under an ostensibly conservative government. So I'm not sure how committed they are to tackling the big problems here. No, but it, the, 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 the difference is, and I'm very happy to criticise yeah. the Conservatives, do it all the time, yeah. but isn't the difference with Labour is that they are the ones actually pushing actively for this hate speech legislation or to, to toughen it up or to, to, to um, I suppose, they're the kind of, they are the activists who are the ones pushing this stuff, whereas there are at least some Conservatives, mm. and not, you know, some Conservatives would agree with them, but there are some Conservatives who push back against this. The Home Secretary, in many cases, she's been quite active in terms of the free speech issue, she even has. Rishi, Rishi Sunak, the same thing. So isn't the difference with Labour is that they are the ones kind of on the other side of the culture war who are pushing this stuff actively? They, they definitely seem much more gung-ho about everything being hateful. I mean, you know, and this is why they think they can get away with these pronouncements about misgendering being, you know, the, the new frontier of hate that they're going to conquer. I mean, it's if, if, if you're going to reduce everything that people want to talk about to... Um, to, to hate unless it's a received position that you've approved as the Labour Party and then anyone who utters that position is absolved from the crime of hate. You know, I mean, that's, that is a, that is a cliché but unfortunately all too real sort of totalitarian scenario and they are more gung-ho about labelling everything hate just as people on that side of the argument tend to be much more gung-ho about reporting people for crimes that haven't happened and trying to get people fired we do see a disproportionate amount of people on the labour side of things taking a pernicious route to speech where they say I want to have the right to speak but I want to be able to shut everybody else down what the Arab Israeli conflict is going to do is create an interesting uh, moment in the history of this culture war where um, I think people on the traditional left side of politics who may, for all sorts of reasons, be um, concerned about what they call you know, the humanitarian crisis unfolding in Gaza and the rights of the Palestinians and the future of a so-called Palestinian state, all of those traditionally left-wing issues may start to come under fire using exactly the same rhetoric of, well, that's hatred. It's hatred against Israel. It's denial of the rights of Israel, Israelis to exist. It's anti-Semitic. Shut it down. Don't fly that flag. Don't say that word. Don't use that phrase. Don't go to those um, events. Don't uh, be heard speaking with that person. And don't write for that publication. Otherwise, you'll be tainted with that thing. And if that happens, it might be time for both sides to have a bit of a sit down and a think. Because once the left start to realise that it works just the same the other way, it's not such a comfortable position, you know, to be called an anti-Semite every time you turn around. It, it, it isn't a nice position to be in. Most, most people who you know, who want to participate in good faith in this debate are not, I don't think, driven by a rabid hatred of Jews. Similarly, on the other side, but of course, there is a, it's a volatile situation. But I think we might be seeing some time for interesting cultural shifts ahead, po possibly positive. Thank you very much, Anna, for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>